Unity 90.3 FM in Montreal and on www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune in to the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had. Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You want to be a human. I wasn't Jim Crow, and hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. Good morning and welcome to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. I am Yasmin. And I am Jean. And we are your hosts for today's show. We would like to acknowledge that CKUT is located on unceded Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabeg, Abenaki, and Mohawk territories. Today, we'll be airing an interview with Poppy about the 70s and 80s in Canadian prisons. We will also be airing a pre-recorded piece from prison radio coordinator Jean about what it's like Jean, who's in studio with us right now, about what it's like to get your driver's license after spending a lot of time in prison. But first, here are some headlines. Ontario Provincial Police have reopened the case of Suleiman Fakiri, who died in a segregation cell at the Central East Correction Center in Lindsay, um, Ontario, while awaiting transfer to a mental health facility in December 2016. We have reported on Sally's case previously on the Prison Radio Show. If you'd like to check out our interview with him, please go to our uh, prison radio uh, website or on the CKUT, and there's archives of it. The OPP says that it will conduct an independent investigation given new evidence that has been found in relation to the case. Yusuf Akiri, Suleiman's older brother, who has been actively speaking out about what happened to Suleiman, says that the reopening of the investigation is a welcome change after two years of fighting for answers. Yusuf Akiri says that his family was never given a clear answer as to why the initial investigation into the circumstances surrounding Solomon's death was closed in the first place and says that the lack of answers and information continues to add the pain he and his family are experiencing in the wake of Solomon's death. Further, commenting on the reopening of the case, Yusuf Akiri said, we are hopeful that it's a step towards justice. We will continue to speak out, not just for my late brother, but for many individuals that are suffering from mental illness. A 31-year-old man diagnosed with mental illness, who was asked to be identified by his initials C.J., has filed a federal lawsuit seeking in Manhattan, forcing to, seeking to force Governor Andre Cuomo to address a shortage of housing for mentally ill people who need support once they are released from prison. Although C.J. was technically released from a New York State prison in September 2017, after serving 10 years inside, he is still in a maximum security prison in Stormville. Though he is technically free, he is still confined to a cell because the state requires him to be released to a supportive housing facility, but there is not one available. 
Lawyers for CJ and other five other mentally ill men filed a federal lawsuit in Manhattan on Wednesday. The men are no longer being held in prison because they committed offenses, their lawyers argued, but because the state has determined that they are likely to become homeless once released, a practice they contend amounts to discrimination under federal civil rights laws. Four of the men, including CJ, have finished their maximum prison sentence and maintain their confinement also violates their constitutional rights to due process and protection against cruel and unusual punishment. The plaintiffs have asked the court to allow them to proceed anonymously because their lawsuit discusses sensitive personal information and they fear retaliation from prison guards. Corrections records indicate that the men are in residential treatment facilities, housing where residents are able to move about freely to seek jobs, visit family, and pursue educational opportunities. But the lawsuit says that says that label, as the state has applied to 13 prisons, is a fraud because the men are being held and treated as other prisoners are. They are locked in cells that have no room for a bed and a few possessions. They are required to wear inmate uniforms. They cannot receive packages. Though labeled releasees, they remain prisoners in every respect, the complaint says. The state continues to hold the men because they are unable to secure a community-based mental health housing placement that does not exist due to a lack of available beds, the complaint said. In effect, the state has lengthened their incarceration, underlining the most basic principle undergirding the criminal justice system that a criminal sentence once imposed by a judge means what it says, the lawsuit said. The lawsuit, which names the State Corrections Department and Mental Health Office as defendants, was filed by the Legal Aid Society and the Disabilities Rights New York, who are seeking class action status on behalf of all the inmates held in state prisons beyond their release dates, solely due to the solely due to the fact that they are being placed in supportive housing. State officials from the Department of Corrections and Community Supervision did not respond to phone calls and emails seeking comment after the lawsuit was filed on Wednesday. It remains unclear how many mentally ill people are being held in prison past their, their release dates. Every day is hard, very hard, CJ has written responses to questions from the New York Times. I wake up, I look around, and I don't understand why I'm here. The lawsuit does not seek an order requiring the six men to be freed. Rather, it asks the state to remove the only barrier to their release by creating more supportive housing for mentally ill people being released from prison. The complaint cites a 1999 court ruling in Olmstead VLC, which held that public institutions must provide community-based services to people with mental illnesses who need and desire them. For decades, since the civil rights movement, public pressure had built on states to take mentally ill people out of psychiatric hospitals and place them in settings where they could participate in society, an effort called deinstitutionalization. But over the years, as psychiatric hospitals closed and lawmakers toughened crime and sentencing policies, more people with mental illnesses wound up incarcerated. Though prisons and jails developed treatment programs, few of them were effective. Advocates for people living with mental illnesses have said, Governor Cuomo has committed the state to building 20,000 new supportive housing units, and state lawmakers so far have allocated $2.6 billion to create the first 6,000 units by 2021. But the lawsuit asserts that under Governor Cuomo, the Office of Mental Health has neglected requests from counties across the state to build additional housing for former prisoners with mental illnesses. Such housing programs where residents receive psychiatric care and learn skills like cooking and using mass transit offer opportunities to participate in public life that prisons do not, mental health advocates also have said. 
But waiting lists have grown longer as the state has eliminated beds from psychiatric hospitals. The roughly 44,000 spaces available for the mentally ill are about half of what is needed, said Antonio Lasiki, the executive director of the Association for Community Living, which represents supportive housing operators. Despite the state's commitment to build more supportive housing, the creation of units has not kept pace with demand, and existing facilities are struggling to stay open. Ms. Lasiki and other advocates said, state funding is barely enough to cover the rent, she said. So that's the problem right there in a nutshell, Ms. Lasiki said. They're very underfunded. Since January 9th, 2019, an estimated 250 prisoners are on a hunger strike within California State Prison, Corcan's 3C facility, in response to an indefinite lockdown. They have asked that this info be made public and that their demands be heard. They and another unit within 3C have been on mod- on modified program for three and a half months. Here, this essentially means a lockdown in all meaningful respects. No visitation, no canteen, no packages, no educational rehab or vocational programming, and little yard time. The pretext for this indefinite lockdown by CDC of hundreds of prisoners for months on end is an alteration on September 28th which saw three prisoners from their unit attacked and put into, into the infirmary. Group punishments and indefinite isolations are standard practice by the CDC and must stop. These practices only escalate trauma and conflict and ultimately they only promote violence and destabilization within, institu- within facilities. These effects are not an accident or regrettable byproducts. This is how C- the CDC interprets its mission, controlled by brutalization and division. Representatives of the unit have composed and relayed their demands to the outside as follows. Corcan State Prison, 3CYRD. Six core demands are as follows. Lift lockdown, allow visits, allow us to attend educational vocational and rehabilitation programs that we're enrolled in, allow us to receive commissionary and packages, that we be given our weekly 10 hours mandated of outdoor exercise yard, that we are treated fairly. We've been on this peaceful hunger strike since January 9th, 2019, and have yet to see change. We will continue this hunger strike until our voices are heard. Call for call-in campaign today, Friday, January 25th, to support prisoners' fight against toxic living conditions in Michigan. This week, people at the Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility the WHV, will be put on lockdown from Tuesday through Friday. During this time, everyone incarcerated at WHV will be forced to take ivermectin, a pill to treat what Michigan Department of Corrections, the MDOC, is calling a scabies outbreak, and the prison will be closed to the public. The Michigan Department of Corrections is forcing the use of ivermectin in response to a mysterious itchy rash that broke out a year ago. People inside WHV are reporting that they suspect the rash is not due to scabies, but rather to issues with the building's water system, black mold, and a lack of ventilation. They report, for example, that MDOC staff have been warned not to drink tap water at the facility, while prisoners have no other option. People inside report that if they refuse to take the ivermectin pill, They are facing punishment and will be placed in segregation for 90 days. Called to demand MDOC's accountability for the handling of the rash and overall conditions at WHV. Show the Michigan Department of Corrections that the public is paying attention to the treatment of the prisoners inside WHV. Call today, Friday, January 25th, and ask, 
Why are women being forced to take this pill when there are reports that the rash may not be connected to scabies? Why are there reports that the water is not drinkable and there is black mold in the showers? Why are guards and doctors told not to drink the tap water? Why has the prison failed to investigate the rash with more transparency? What will happen to women who refuse to take the pill? Ivermectin. Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility Warden Sean Brewer can be reached at area code 734-572-9900, then press 8 for more options, 3 for administrative office, and 1 for warden's office. I will repeat that. The Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility Warden Sean Brewer can be reached at 734 572 9900 then press 8 for more quest- for more options 3 for administrative office and 1 for warden's office the michigan department of corrections director heidi washington who you can also call to ask these same questions can be reached at area code 517-241-7238 again the michigan department of corrections director heidi washington can be reached at 517 517- Two four one seven two three eight. We encourage as many people, as many listeners as possible, to call in and ask these questions, and we will post these questions on our website. Next up, we will air an interview with Pappy. The interview is part of our slow, ongoing history series that started in the summertime with an interview with Bob Gauthier. This interview with Pappy talks about the seventies and eighties in Canadian prisons and the changes that took place in federal prisons at that time. Check out our blog for past pieces in the series. My name is Pappy. Um, I served uh, around 29 years in prison. Uh, I've been out for uh, around 11 years. When did you start doing time in Canadian prisons? What year? And in, 19, in the beginning of 1980. <clears throat> but I did some time like at the end of the 70s too, like okay. my first... Uh, Sentence for the four years that I did, and uh, the thing is, it was military. Like the first time you were inside this military. Yeah, okay. the, up till the 80s, uh, mid the 80s, I'd say. Uh, yeah, about till 86. You had to button up your shirt till uh, to, to the neck, and uh, the guards, and the thing is, you had uh, nothing. Then in the 80s, in yeah, around 86, uh, they started changing the system, and uh, they went about it with, uh, me, I call it the Kennedy system. The thing is, uh, in the max for the long sentence, even at 10 years, you would go through a max, which you didn't sometimes before, in transit. So they had a certain percentage of the population that shouldn't have been there and they wanted out so they had a bigger control over them because they had something that they could give them while before it was all long sentences it's like when i started my sentence they they told me right off the bat like don't come and see us even before five years you're getting nothing so it's like you're doing your time but it's like you're not giving me nothing i got nothing to lose so they started a bit that transit system and uh, then they brought like the trailers 
and uh, that thing would they bring the trailers but it is a thing the inmates were fighting for so like it's a two-edged uh, two sword in a way because then in the sense that you got something to lose so even if you're there for years you got your trailers so you don't want to affect that so what it did is it broke down before it was like military but like with the military system was it was more direct like things were straight and the inmates were more together and you could see that but i think with the public too because we had the prisoner justice day and there was big march in front of ottawa and and all this was to fight for the inmates but to get the trailers to get some rights but the government being the government they took the those right they said okay we got to give it to them but we'll use it at the same time so that that was a big change like i'd say the the mid 80s that uh, it was their plan was in it started a bit before but uh, up to the beginning of the 80s it was really like a military system and uh, it was like no contact really between guards and that and and uh, but everything the government, well, the, the government, this prison system, much control of everything. Like a, a thing we received in the 80s too was programs. Like at the beginning of the 80s, all those programs were people from the street getting contracts and coming in. And it was their vocation, we could say. So they were a lot of help. But by the end of the 90s, they took that, they sent uh, parole officers or guards take six months course on therapy. And then they took over and they put the people from the street, they cut their contracts, and now they're giving that. So there's trust. Even the psychologist, the first thing he tells you, anything you see, may be held against you. So it's like on the street, if a person uh, goes see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, he knows he has that confidentiality, but inside it's it's none. So everything is, anything you see may be held against you. Like uh, So you can't really open up to the person. Uh, and the system is, the first thing in their mind and like I say it's they're not professional it's not their vacation so the changes is pretty much all that like but gradual not then one day uh, gradually with the years now they pretty much have control of everything that uh, but this all started with people on the street the inmates fighting for rights which we got but the system took them and turned around and gave themselves more power. So you would have started, you would have been inside in the years directly following Prisoner Justice Day. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about what that was like? Like what the early days of Prisoner Justice Day were like? I know it started <coughs> in maybe 76, but if you were in in 77? Yeah, that was, well, uh, Ontario was really strong because I, I, I got transferred a bit later uh, in Leclerc, 
and uh, Quebec was in, uh, but it was a medium too, so uh, it was a really strong thing. And like I say, it's a thing that really helped, say, things get better for inmates. Not just the trailers, uh, shops, uh, school. Uh, and like I see, the movement was strong on the outside too, so you had a lot of support. You know, it was like a whole day. So uh, because we didn't go to work, we were locked in the cell for the daytime, but we still had our recreation at night, but we did uh, like special uh, things. People would talk and uh, bring all the, uh, the death that happened inside, uh, and uh, like uh, Milivan was a big, uh, it was really big there, and there was a lot of uh, questionable shootings and uh, suicides in the in the hall, and uh, and you had the shoe, a special handling unit that was in Milivan too at the time, which was uh, pretty rough for uh, inmates. So uh, I think it was really good, but like I say, it, it was still uh, the end of the military system. We had nothing, so it seems like when you got nothing, people seem to gather more because you're all in the same situation. So uh, I think all in all, it was like really good movement, but like I say. Uh, after the 80s, it kind of started to go down, and uh, it's still uh, applied in some places, but a lot of places. Uh, but like the 70s was like a really strong, uh, inmates had a really strong feeling about it. But the injustice that was done in those years, like I see it's a military system, so it's, it's like, a, how can I say that? Uh, they had a, a blank card for, uh, let's say, a murder happened on the range. They could pick up 20 guys and under investigation, you know, like they, one guy killed one guy there, but uh, everybody that didn't like would end up in the shoe. But they didn't have to prove anything. That's what I mean by a blank card. They just, okay, you're going to the shoe. And that's another thing they won in the 80s. They couldn't do that anymore. It's... So yeah, you ended up in those years doing sometimes uh, solitary for uh, two years for because they didn't like your attitude.
Poppy, who spent around 29 years in federal prisons in Canada. Poppy has been talking about changes to the federal prison system in the 70s and 80s. He has also been talking about the history of Prisoner Justice Day, normally observed on August 10th in federal prisons and on the outside to commemorate people who have died in prison. some restriction on uh, like the hall like uh, one time I spent seven months in halls they can't do that anymore they can do 30 days put you in segregation for a while then give you another 30 days if they want and segregation the difference between segregation and dissociation really the whole is dissociation they call is you have no rights in segregation, everything a person has in the population, you have your books. After you had TVs, you could bring your TV. So it's you're like just separated from the population, but you have all your rights. Well, in the association, like back then, you were allowed to smoke, but in segregation, you could smoke, but you couldn't. They took your tobacco away. You know, like they took everything away. It's one of the things I'm curious about is, so there's two maybe history things, but you were in Millhaven in 77? Uh, no, it's uh, 80, okay. 1980. Because okay. I'm curious about how people found out about Prisoner Justice Day in the other prisons. Yeah, I'd say uh, more word from word, and like I say, it was on the news, it was uh, demonstrations on the streets, so there, there was a lot of uh, media around it. But like I say, I went to Leclerc, so I talked about it, and I, I uh, back then it wasn't, because uh, when I, I came in, I did like a couple of months, but back then, uh, the old pen uh, in Kingston was still open. You had like, uh, it wasn't all uh, protection back then. You had like, uh, there was, if you got sentenced, you went there first to be evaluated. And I had a four-year sentence, so, uh, and I opted to go to uh, Leclerc. But, uh, like, even there, uh, so I'm, I'm guessing just, like, people moving around and uh, the media and, uh, and like I say, you had nothing in prison, so there was that factor, and uh, Archambault had a lot of problems, too, in those years. Uh, there was riots and... Uh, so it's it was something to cling on, and 
when you're in that situation, people tend to cling to what they can to survive. When you got to Leclerc, people already knew about it? it was yeah, it was, it was already known, but it wasn't uh, at 100%. But it's a medium too. I'm guessing Archambault would have been a lot stronger. Because in the medium, like, in Leclerc back then was uh, the lower medium, we could say. Uh, so people were uh, there for like two, three years, so I'm getting out in one year. Uh, I don't give a f about other people. Uh, so like uh, in lower, with lower sentence, you have a more uh, attitude of me. What do I get? I mean, you're talking a bit about this change in the mid-80s towards less of a military system. Yeah. Um, but when, in the early 80s, in the like early days of Prisoner Justice Day, what kind of reactions did the administration have to people participating in Prisoner Justice Day? Well, I think the beginning was uh, rough there because uh, it was like a lockdown. Then they started uh, giving us the gym and that so we could... Uh, uh, because there was always a service for people who died in prison. Uh, so they started allowing that. But I think that was more because of the media. So they didn't want uh, But you could see they, they were trying to uh, get us... Uh, see if I can find an example. I think it was Joyceville, yeah. They, they asked... Instead, don't serve us the meal. We won't throw it in the garbage, but give it to this organization instead. And uh, they did that, but then he got in the media. And then they said no. So they, they didn't like that we looked good. So they rather that we threw our food in the garbage than give it, it to poor people so that was a bit their attitude like they were trying to put it down they didn't know exactly at the beginning how to deal with it like at first it was military so you're all locked down uh, that's it uh, you'll be punished uh, you lose your, you have like a pay grades uh, you lose your pay grade blah 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 but then when they say it didn't work and plus, it got big on the street. So then they had the media too, like, taking a look. So uh, they were kind of uh, trying different things to, uh, okay, we'll allow that. Oh, no, they look too good. We'll take it, that. But So it was a struggle with them to how to deal with it in the beginning. Then they kind of just left it uh, like a holiday uh, for every year. Well, in, especially in Ontario. Other province, like I say, wasn't as strong, so they couldn't say, uh, we'll take this, we'll take that. That was Poppy, who served 29 years in Canadian prisons. He talked to us about what Canadian prisons were like in the 1980s. This piece is part of a longer series about the history of prisons in Canada that the Prison Radio Show is working on. Check out our blog for past pieces in the series. Up next... We'll hear the first in what we hope will become a recurring segment from Prison Radio Show host, Gene, who is in studio. In this piece, Gene talks about what it's like to get your driver's license after doing many years in prison. 
<laughs> Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? <laughs> the shadow knows. Gene, I'm going to talk today about uh, how I got my driver's license. I was inside 30 years, well, almost, let's just say 28 years and a change. I hadn't had a driver's license since 1970-something now. So, I decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to go for my driver's license. I went and did my written test, passed that, now I had to go for the driver's test. I thought, okay, this is, this is going to be easy. I said, oh, it's like riding a bike. I said, I did it three years ago, I was a good driver, never failed the driver's test. I said, oh, I'll get this, no problem. But I need a couple hours of practice. Of course, I didn't know anybody in the city who uh, had a car at that time. So I figured what I'll do is I'll just go to one of those driving schools and I'll say, okay, because I had a license before, I didn't have to go and do the year course that they have to make you do now. If you never had a license, you got to do a year course and you got all these demerit points you got to watch for and all this. It's, it's a big hassle. But because I had a license once in the past, I had to just write my uh, learners and then I could go for my driver's test. I went to the driver's school, and I told them this, and they said, okay, yeah, you need a couple hours. I said, okay. And they said, do a couple hours, and then right after, go for your test. I said, oh, well, you know, I want a little bit of rest here. You know, I want to make sure I know what I'm doing. So, okay, we're going to rent your car for a couple hours there. We've got an instructor who will go with you. Well, it wasn't like riding a bike at all. I couldn't believe how, how, how much different it was than what I hadn't pictured in my mind. We went for driving in this guy's car. I couldn't even get out of the parking lot without almost getting hit. Everything was just going so much faster. I couldn't process the information that I was seeing. The guy saying, okay, look left, look right. You always make sure you look all around you. Check the car ahead of you. Check the car to the side of you. Look for pedestrians, look for pedestrians. Uh, look for the signs. What does the sign say? What's the speed limit? What's the turn? Uh, turn up here. Uh, I'm telling you, I was, uh, my mind was going a 1,000 miles an hour. It's been so long since I drove. And I couldn't process. That's what I found out. I couldn't process the information, the real-time information, my, the sights, the sounds. I couldn't process everything that I needed to in the speed that I needed to. Now, if you're driving for all your life and you haven't stopped driving, that comes naturally. A lot of it, you just know, you see it without being aware of it. You understand it without being aware of it because that's just second nature after a while. But I'm trying to get up to speed here. So I, and you got to remember, it's been 30 years almost since I last drove. Laws have changed, you know, we're in the city here in Montreal compared to where I was out west. Everything was going so much faster, you know, I couldn't process it. Now, after the end of an hour, the guy turned to me and he says, you know, he says, you're going to need a lot more than one more hour of uh, 
driving. So I would normally say, ah, this guy's trying to make a few bucks off me and uh, because it's 30 bucks an hour for this here goddamn car. But that wasn't the case at all, and I realized that I was just not up to speed. We went another another hour or another day. That, he said, that's still not good, and I could tell too. Ended up going six hours. Then I said, okay, i got to be ready now. You know, like I was getting a little comfortable. So we were always driving in his car. He had his own personal car that he used for the school. So I used, I drove this guy's car and a parallel parked with it and that. So I got a little bit used to his. But I had to rent a car that the sack on Drew Brack. So they have their cars. The school has cars that they park there permanently that people can use for driver's tests. So I rented a car. I didn't even know what that is. I said, oh, Jesus. I said, it's going to probably be the same as what I drove in. So we go there. The instructor says, ah, I'm so-and-so. Yeah, you ready for your test? I said, yeah, yeah. So we went out, went up to this car. I've had shoe boxes that were bigger than this car. I swear to God, this thing was so small. And I never seen it before in my life. A car like that. I'd never been in one of my like, We open the door, get in. And I had to scrunch myself to get in. I swear to God, the gas pedal was as big as my finger. That's how small this thing was. I could barely touch anything. And I said, geez, it was the daytime. I said, please don't let them ask me to turn the lights on. I didn't even know where the lights were on this thing. I didn't know. Other than I knew where the right single switch was. But (laughs) the other stuff, windshield wipers and all this, I had no idea. This thing here, like, you know, the last time I was driving cars, we had big boats. Those big old uh, 25-foot-long things, you know. Now we're these little cars that are, like I said, like shoeboxes. So anyhow, we get this thing started. And off you go. I, I didn't even get a block and I almost crashed. You just touch the wheel, just a quarter turn, and it would do almost a complete turn compared to the car that I had practiced in. So we're going along, and it went from bad to worst. We get up to the intersection. I thought it was a four-way. It was a two-way. almost hit a car. Then we're driving along. I went five miles over the speed limit. I said, ah, this is finished, and uh, I almost gave up then. So we keep going. Almost hit a cat. The guy turns out to be a cat lover. He had a heart attack because I almost hit this cat. And the guy who uh, the instructor had before that told me, he said, okay, you never stop for anything because I stopped for uh, something that ran across the path. I think it was a squirrel or some damn thing. There are a lot of squirrels in Montreal. And then I almost came to a stop. He said, yeah, you never stop for anything because there could be a car behind you and he could hit you. As I see this cat running across the road when I'm with, this, with the instructor for my, my driver's test, I'm saying out loud just so he understands. I said, oh, the instructor I had before, he told me not to stop for anything because the car behind me could hit me. But this guy's looking at the cat, and I go and I don't slow down. The cat disappears from sight in front of my car, and I said, oh, geez, I'm going to run him over. But he must have stopped at the last second because there's no bump. (laughs) I keep going. The instructor's grabbing his chest. He's going, oh, God, oh, God. I said, well, if I never fail for all the other stuff... This guy's a cat lover and almost killed a cat. He's failing me for sure for this, if nothing else. Anyhow, so make a long story short, we ended up going back to the motor vehicles branch. We did parallel parking, and to end everything on a good note, or a bad note, because the way things are going, bumped the car in front of me. I said, ah, man, this is just bad to worse. So he told me, he said, well, he said, you know, he said, I don't, I believe you can drive. He said, but not today. He said, so I... I I'm sorry to tell you, you failed. And I said, well, I could could see that. I'm not holding nothing against you. I said, I understand that. So the second time I went, thankfully, a friend of mine let me use his car several times. He came with me. And he let me use the same car for the driver's test. So I got used to driving 
his car. Then I used the same car for the driver's test. So the second time going around, I can say I passed and it worked out good. But it's another thing when people get out of jail, they think everything's going to be like it was before. Oh yeah, I get my license and get it back and do this and that. But just like everything else in life, things change. And you don't, you realize things were not as good as you like to think they were. Just like the good old days like this and that. They were not always that good old days like that. And things were not as easy. You just have to realize, again, you got to take things slow. You got to practice. You got to work at them. And if you fail, don't take it to heart. Learn from it. Move forward. And you will succeed eventually. So that was how I got my license after 30 years of not driving. <laughs> Thank you. That was Poppy, our prison, sorry, that was Jean, our prison radio show host, talking about what it's like to get your driver's license after doing lots of time in prison. Poppy was the interview before, talking about prisons in Canada in the 80s. Um, and next up, we will air the first of a three-part interview series from Democracy Now! with Angela Davis. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we spend the hour with the legendary activist and scholar Angela Davis, professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz. For more than four decades, Davis has been one of the most influential activists and intellectuals in the United States. An icon of the black liberation movement, Angela Davis's work around issues of gender, race, class and prisons has influenced critical thought and social movements across several generations. She's a leading advocate for prison abolition, a position informed by her own experience as a prisoner and a fugitive on the FBI's top 10 wanted list more than four 40 years ago. Once caught, she faced the death penalty in California. After being acquitted on all charges, she spent her life fighting to change the criminal justice system. I recently spoke to her in Washington, D.C., just before the midterm elections at Busboys and Poets. I began by asking her about her connection to the late great soul singer Aretha Franklin. The last time I got a chance to talk to you, Angela. We tracked you down your last morning, I'm sure you appreciated this, in Martha's Vineyard, right? It was in August. It was the day that Aretha Franklin died. So why were we looking for Angela? Because of their connection that hardly gets attention today, but I think says so much about both women. And I wanted to read a quote of Aretha Franklin, who told Jet Magazine in 1970, my daddy says, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, I respect him, of course, but I'm going to stick by my beliefs. Angela Davis must go free. Black people will be free. I've been locked up for disturbing the peace in Detroit, and I know you gotta disturb the peace when you can't get no peace. Jail is hell to be in. I'm going to set her free if there's any justice in our courts, not because I believe in communism, but because she's a black woman and she wants freedom for black people. I have the money. I got it from black people. They've made me financially able to have it, and I want to use it in ways that will help our people. 
What did that mean to you at the time? Aretha Franklin saying, I want you free. I was in jail at the time, of course. Uh, and when I learned about it, it was one of the most moving moments I experienced during that time because, of course, Aretha had already provided the soundtrack of our lives, you know? <laughs> and, and I was just, you know, so moved and so uplifted that, um, that she was willing to pay my bail. But I should tell you, bail hadn't been set at that time. So it's a, interesting story. I was charged with three capital offenses, every single one of which was unbailable. And, um, and so at that time, I had some arguments with people who were organizing, who wanted to do a bail movement. And I'm sitting in jail, and I said, but I'm ineligible for bail. What's the point? But they proved me wrong, and, and people all over the world signed petitions. And then eventually, interestingly enough, the state of California temporarily abolished the death penalty. Um, and, um, and my lawyers tried their best to get in touch with Aretha, but she was in the Caribbean at the time. In the West Indies. And that was a different era. Uh, it, you're used to money, capital flowing with ease over national borders. There was no way that she could get the money to us in time. And so um, this white farmer by the name of Roger McAfee, who had a farm in central California, showed up at my lawyer's office and he said, I'm willing to put up my farm. And, and the thing is, had I not gotten out at that moment, I wouldn't have gotten out on bail because immediately the Supreme Court ruled that all capital offenses that were previously ineligible for bail would remain ineligible. And so there was this tiny window and Aretha by publicly announcing that she was going to pay my bail, made everybody listen. Uh, and so I like to think that it was Aretha, you know, who bailed me out, and she did. You know, we have a terrible problem in this country, even with all of the media, with all of the channels. History gets erased so quickly, and I see so many young people here today and I was wondering if you can tell that history, because each of the moments in your life were a political struggle, to say the least. I mean, we could, and we will go back even further to where you were born, to Birmingham, but since we're talking about this moment, 1969, Governor Ronald Reagan wants you thrown out of UCLA as a professor, as a teacher because you're a communist and he wants no communist voice there. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I never expected to be the center of attention um, in that way. Um, 
I just wanted to teach philosophy. And um, probably had anyone told me that I would be fired by Ronald Reagan and, and that uh, this uh, huge uproar all over the country um, about the fact that a communist was teaching at UCLA. Uh, I mean, I thought the McCarthy era was over, you know? Uh, because that there was a period where if you were a communist, you, you were not able to teach, you were not able to make movies. Um, you all know about the McCarthy era, right? Uh, okay. Um, I always say, even if you don't have actual memory, you can have historical memory. So this should be a part of our historical memory. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, Ronald Reagan. Oh my God. You know, it's so interesting that at these moments when people like Ronald Reagan were elected, when people like Richard Dixon, we never expected that it could possibly be any worse. George W. Bush, I mean, the current occupant of, of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue um, makes um, George Bush look a lot better than he looked at the time. And that's weird. Um, but before we go there, um, <laughs> 1970, you're fighting as you fight today, more than 40 years later, um, against the prison industrial complex to free the Soldad brothers. And there's a shootout in the Marin Courthouse. And that's what led to your charge, your charges. Today, Washington State Supreme Court overturned the death penalty in Washington State, making it the 20th state. But. Your experience, and I think a lot of young people may not realize this, comes out also of your own experience in jail and prison. You faced three death penalties, three death sentences? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Amy is a really good interviewer. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, 19, 1969, I was fired from UCLA, and um, um, that was a pretty difficult year. I got, I got um, literally hundreds of death threats. I had to be um, ushered from classroom to classroom by the UCLA campus police. They had to um, start my car up to make sure there wasn't a bomb planted. Um, and they ushered me to the edge of campus because they wanted to guarantee that I was not killed on the campus. I mean, that was, that was really their role. And I say this because uh, it, it meant that I had to have um, security um, 24 hours. Um, and I had to have someone move into my apartment with me because I, had, I lived alone at that time. I had to have, have someone, I had to have armed security. Um, 
uh, 24 hours a day. And I had, um, I purchased a couple of guns that were used by the people who were doing security for me. Uh, uh, you know, particularly when I was speaking, I should say that around the same time, we learned about the case of the Soledad brothers, George Jackson, John Cluchet, Fleda, Fleda Drumgo, and began to do organizing in Southern California. There was a committee in Northern California to free the Soledad brothers. We created a committee in Southern California. And um, uh, George's younger brother, Jonathan, uh, who, um, who was an amazing, uh, really beautiful uh, young man who uh, was an incredible writer. Uh, he, wrote, he wrote poetry. He was um, also deeply dedicated to his brother. Uh, and I give you all of this information because at one point, uh, Jonathan, who had been doing security for me, took uh, those guns that I had uh, bought for my security and went into the Marin County Courthouse. Uh, and um, we're still not exactly certain what the plans were, but it seemed that, uh, that he was going to um, call for the freedom of his, his brother and, and the Soledad brothers. Uh, George was in San Quentin at the time. They had been moved to San Quentin. And there was a trial happening in the Marin County Courthouse that involved a number of San Quentin prisoners. Jonathan went into uh, the courtroom um, and brought the judge out with some of the jurors into a waiting van. Um, and then, as we discovered during my trial, it was the San Quentin guards who opened fire, who were responsible for the death of the judge and um, uh, the other prisoners and Jonathan. And um, I mean, it was a, it was it was horrendous. It was it was really horrendous. I can remember we we examined uh, some of the San Quentin guards during my trial and ask what their policy was with respect to escapes. And they said their policy was to prevent escapes at all costs. And so we said, well, if it means the death of one person or 20 persons, does that still hold true? And he said, yes. If it, if it meant the death of one child or 20 children, he said, yes. Uh, um, so, anyway, I was charged with murder, kidnapping, and conspiracy because the, the guns were registered in my name. And you had a major decision to make at that time, and you decided to go underground. Well, I wasn't going to turn myself in, <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, we all we we were all very much aware of what had happened to little Bobby Hutton, an 18-year-old member of the Black Panther Party, when he tried to surrender to police, and was killed. And it was really interesting—an interview, um, or rather, a, a um, 
um, a study was done, a poll was taken of people in Los Angeles, in black communities. Uh, and the question was whether they thought that uh, I uh, was uh, doing the right thing by leaving. And it was like 90% said yes, because they knew the Los Angeles Police Department. And they knew how many people had been killed by the police department. So, you know, I, I ne it never even crossed my mind to um, turn myself in at that time. I was thinking that, that you know, maybe, maybe at a more auspicious moment, you know, maybe if, if organizing were done and, I mean, I didn't get to do that because the FBI caught up with me and, and I was actually captured by the FBI, um, which was another story, but... Uh, in New York. Yeah, I was in New York. Uh, well, I was actually running from the FBI because... <laughs> you know, people have this romantic idea about what it means to be underground. Uh, but, you know, in a sense, I was almost relieved because every time I saw a white man in a suit, I assumed it was the FBI. <laughs> And if I had stayed underground any longer, I probably You've been listening to an interview from Democracy Now! with Angela Davis. Um, we will continue the interview on our next show and the uh, remaining two parts of it. Um, if you would like more information about the interview, you can go to democracynow.org. It is currently 11.57. You're listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. 91.7 on cable and online at hyperlink http slash www.ckut.ca www.ckut.ca For more info, check out past episodes of the Prison Radio Show at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com You can also follow us on Twitter at prisonradioshow the Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Tuesday, Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. The next Prison Radio Show will air on Thursday, February 14th at 5 p.m. If you wish, if you have any questions on anything that you have heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-4041, extension 2547. If you're in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. Feel free to write us at The Prison Radio Show, or simply PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, H3A, 2B3.
rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? It comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You